So I pulled an audible. We're not going to do the next chapter. If you, how many people read the next chapter? All right, good. You're ahead of the game. All right. I've decided to jump over to section five, having concluded everything but the last chapter of section four. And that chapter was a lot of redundancy, so I decided to move ahead into section five, which is answers to apologetic challenges. And I did remember my glasses this week. Oh, boy, my screen's dirty. I can see that now. Yeah. Or is that my glasses? Anyway, ready to reason is the name of the chapter. Bonson opens up his, uh, this chapter with this quotation. The word of God no more needs defense than it does a lion in a cage. Just let the lion loose and it will take care of itself. It's a very popular quote, all right? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I know Spurgeon has been credited with it, uh, but I don't know if he was the originator of it, but it's been, it's been around for a while. Here's what Bonson has to say about it. He says, well, something like that assertion is indeed right. God is certainly not in need of anything much less the puny efforts of any particular man or woman to defend his word. He is the creator of heaven and earth, almighty in power, sovereign in controlling all things. The Apostle Paul, when reasoning with the Athenian philosophers, made that very point. He declared that God is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he gives to all life and breath and all things. Okay, that's his opening response to that quotation. And then he continues, and, and this is all, this is nothing new. It, it's not specifically just geared towards apologetics. It's nothing new. If God were ever to hunger, for instance, and of course this is a, one of those hypotheticals, he would not need to tell us since the fullness of all creation is his. He depends upon nothing outside himself. That's a part of our, what we would call theology proper, who, talking about who, who God is. And everything outside of him depends upon him for its existence, its qualities, abilities, accomplishments, and blessings. And then he quotes again from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. All right. I, I like the way Bonson does this because if you look at that quote, that quote can be misleading, and he's going to get into that in a minute. But before he, he even answers that, he's setting up here, let's, let's remember who God is. And that's why he that takes this little sojourn down to what we would call theology proper. And then he continues. So it is obvious that God does not need our inadequate reasoning and our feeble attempts to defend his word. There's an operative word in that sentence. What do you think is the crucial word that everything hinges on? Yes, God does not need our inadequate reasoning and our feeble attempts to defend his word. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the pious-sounding remark 
which we began, is still mistaken. So notice he does take somewhat issue with the statement that was made. He said, it suggests that we should not concern ourselves with efforts at apologetics because God will directly take care of such matters himself. Now notice what he's saying. And he's not talking strictly theoretical. There are people in the evangelical church today that will use a quotation like that and say, I don't have to defend God. God, more powerful than I am, he can take care of himself. And that's the issue that we deal with in this, in this chapter. That's why I say this is a very important chapter. It suggests we should not concern ourselves with efforts at apologetics because God will directly take care of such matters himself. The remark is just as mistaken as saying that God does not need us as evangelists. Now, I like that he put that one in because has anybody here heard of a denomination called Primitive Baptists? Anybody? You got one? Just, just Jerry? No, no, something different. These Primitive Baptists are Calvinists. All right, but they are what we would term as hyper-Calvinists. They don't believe in evangelism. They believe in election, and if God's going to save somebody, he's going to bring them in. So they don't believe in evangelism at all. All right? so, and they're using the same type of reason. God doesn't need us. He's all-powerful, and if he's got to elect to save, he'll save them. All right? Uh, and, of course, they, they quote, you know, he could even make the stones cry out, couldn't he? Therefore, efforts at evangelistic witness are unimportant. Now, again, that's, he's not making a theoretical statement here. This is, he's basing this on fact. Or a person might misguidedly think that because God has the power uh, and ability to provide for his family, with food and clothing, without help from us, he does not need us to go out and work tomorrow. <laughs> Notice the thinking is the same. And that's exactly what Bonson is doing here. Bonson is showing the, you know, he's using logic to show if, if this is going to be your attitude that God doesn't need us to defend the faith, that God doesn't need us to evangelize, well then you'd, God doesn't need you to provide for your family either. Thinking like this is unbiblical. It confuses what God himself needs from us and what God requires of us. Notice the distinction. God, what is, let me ask you flat out, what does God need from us? It's an easy one. You all get 100. All right. But does God require something from us? And we could go around the, the room here, and we could come up with a long list of things that God requires from us. And there's a very distinct difference in what God needs, which, again, obviously is nothing. But what does he require of us? It assumes that God ordains the ends, but not the means 
or at least not the instrumentality of created means. This falls right in, and he doesn't touch on this issue in this uh, section, but it, same issue, I, I preached a, a series of messages on prayer quite a few years ago now, and the title of one was, If God is Sovereign, Why Pray? Just think about it. And especially if God knows what we need before we ask him, why pray? Okay? It's that same type of mentality. Why, why do we pray? Yes. <laughs> because God does ordain the means as well as the end. You want to see God move? Pray that he moves. That's exactly the message of Scripture. Prayer is important. Okay? <clears throat> there is no need for God to use our evangelistic witness, our daily work for a paycheck, or our defense of the faith. But he chooses to do so, and he calls us to apply ourselves to them. Notice, the things that, that we're talking about here are things that not only does he tell us to do, command to do, but he tells us that we are to be diligent in doing those things. <clears throat> in, in fact, the whole series on apologetics comes from, from 1 Peter 3.15, right? And what is, is it, is it left casually to us? Does he say it's a good idea? If somebody has a, a question for you about the hope that you have, you would be a good idea if you had some, if you were ready. Sometimes be prepared, right? Or how about the realm of providing for your family? What does he say about that? It's a good idea? What does he say? <laughs> if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. <laughs> so these are, these are not sideline issues. And he, he speaks very directly uh, to them. And notice... Uh, it's in the same realm we come into apologetics. The Bible directs us to work, although God could provide for our families in other ways. The Bible directs us to evangelize, even though God could use other means to call sinners to himself. And the Bible also directs us to defend the faith, not because God would be helpless without us, but because this is one of his ordained means of glorifying himself and vindicating his truth. So he has called us into this important task. Christ speaks to the church as a whole through Jude, commanding us, and here you see this is a corollary to 1 Peter 3.15, commanding us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I'm not going to touch that because that we could go off on a huge rabbit trail on that, and which is not necessary. False and heretical teaching was threatening the church and its grasp of gospel truth. This is talking about Jude. And Jude very well knew that God was in sovereign control and indeed that God would in time directly deal with wicked teachers, consigning them to everlasting condemnation. You think Jude, read the book of Jude? We actually preached through Jude 
a couple times here. I know I preached to it. Didn't we do it in Sunday school? Somebody did while you were out. Oh, behind my back. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, actually, (laughs) (laughs) so it's at least twice. Jude is a very important book, even though it's so short. It's an extremely important book. Still, Jude also urged his readers themselves to contend with the error of false teaching, not sitting back and expecting God would simply take care of it himself. What are the ramifications? What are the implications of that? Just so far, throw that out to the floor. What are the implications of, of what we've seen thus far tonight? Do I have to sit down and take a nap? Believers <laughs> have obligations. <laughs> That's it? That's all you got? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how high is it on, on God's list of priorities? I mean, we've seen it over and over again urging his readers to contend with the faith, urging them to be always ready to give an account. All right? I mean, tells, you know, in the pastoral epistle, be ready in season and out of season. Okay? Does God, does God ever tell us, oh, you just don't worry about it. I'll take care of the evangelism. Just the opposite. Yeah. He saved us to do just that. We're saved for good works. Exactly. Paul wrote to Titus, that overseers, that's pastors and elders, in the church are, are required to be especially adept at refuting those who oppose the truth of God. Now, it's specifically, I mean, it's the job of everybody in the congregation, but it's especially for the elders of the church and the pastors. Refuting those who oppose the truth of God. This next, you like that one there? Did you see that? I'll do, I'll do it again for you if you missed it. All right? I've been every, having everything this way. I just figured you could do it sideways. This is following his outline in the book. His first subsection is called What It Isn't. That is what, it, what apologetics isn't. He says we should look at 1 Peter 3.15 once again, and notice a few things that it does not say. One, it does not say that believers are supposed to take the initiative and start arrogant arguments with unbelievers, telling them that we have all the answers. Is that a problem? Is it a problem in the church? Do we know people? Have we seen them on TV and on news clips arrogantly challenging people in, in, a, in a very ungodly, unloving way? And Ponson goes out of his way to say that's something that it's, we're specifically not included in this. The text also indicates that the spirit in which we offer our apologetic answer is one of gentleness and respect. So there's the first what it isn't. 
Second, another thing that 1 Peter 3.15 does not say is that believers are responsible to persuade anybody who challenges or questions their faith. What's, what's the difference here from what the, he, it, it does say on a positive note? Why is this? And this is a, should be important. And if you've done any apologetics, any evangelism, you should very carefully understand this one. Go ahead, Remy. I mean, we don't have the power to convince someone or to convert them. I mean, we just, God tells us to contend for the faith. But, you know, them converting is, is the Holy Spirit's work. To just stand for the truth and just tell them. Exactly. We can offer sound reasons to the unbeliever, but we cannot make him or her subjectively uh, believe those reasons. That's not in our power. We are never told that we have to save somebody. We, it's impossible for us to save anybody, yeah. Also, the nature of persuasion uh, makes the recipient the focus then, not God. Right. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. Say also, like, if you approach, uh, like, apologetics to, to win an argument, that's, that's when those conversations become, like, in a sense, offensive and filled with pride. Instead of, like, you're, you're sharing with them these reasons with humility and wanting them to, to believe, but knowing that, you know, you don't have the power to do it. You can't change their mind. Yeah. yeah. It also gives you great freedom. When you're up against somebody and it's particularly polemic in their, their style and all, you just continually answer in grace and, and love and, and uh, you know, a, a soft answer turns away wrath. Just answer back that way. And if the person gets all flustered and walks away, that's fine. Let him go. Okay? We can close the mouth of the critic, but only God can open the heart. And that's an important one. You know, that, and that's being ready. If you're ready when somebody comes up and they make one of these lunatic, lunatic statements, if you can come back from the word of God and put them down and silence them, that's exactly what presupposition apologetics is all about. Answering the fool according to his folly, so he's not wise in his own eyes. Didn't shut his mouth. But whether or not he ac accepts what you have to say, that's, that is in God's province, not ours. Three, yet another thing that 1 Peter 3.15 does not say is that defending the faith has a different ultimate authority than does the task of expounding the faith. What is he driving at here? Please, somebody. He refers to the myth of neutrality, which we have expounded upon over and, and over again from our pulpit. There is no such thing as neutrality. There is the only ultimate authority is the word of God. And that holds true for apologetics as evangelism. Remember, evangelism and apologetics are not like two separate things. They're two sides of the same coin. 
because you can't defend the faith without being evangelistic. And you can't be evangelistic without being apologetic. Okay? Reason and reasoning. This is the next chapter, next uh, subdivision. He says, believers who aim to defend the faith make a serious mistake when they imagine then that something like reason should displace Christ as the ultimate authority. Reason. What does he mean by that? And what does this highlight? The fact that he would even make it. Notice he's got reason in quotes. Why would he, why would he say this at this point? Something that's rational, you know, logical. Maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> like supposedly neutral logic when people don't realize that our logic is tainted by sin. And so like believers were like, oh, like, let's just try to use reason since that's what they want to use. But they don't realize that everyone's reason is tainted because of sin. And we need to rely upon the scriptures always. Otherwise, you're giving up your okay. sword. Good. Um, because we also have to factor in that faith is essential in this process. Like, reason can only take us so far which is why, like, Plato and the philosophers that preceded, um, you know, Christ could only come to a certain point in their understanding of the divine where it's like faith <coughs> is necessary. Going right along with all of this, we're presuppositional. So to some people, presuppositional is not going to be reasonable. At all. Uh, and, but we're not going to set that aside for their their need for, for a reason. Okay, well, I was going to say that any reason that's not founded upon Christ is not true reason at all. You're all true. Everyone's good. Yeah. But, go ahead. This highlights the difference between using faulty human reasoning to come to a conclusion versus just relying on God to tell us the conclusion. So one is bottom up, the other one is top down. It's revelation from God not information from men. Sure. And, and why, why do you think it has reason in quotes? Because the unbeliever is a fool? Well, that's true. <laughs> but I don't think that's why you've got in quotes. Their reason is not based in Christ. It's not submitted to Christ, so therefore it's not going to lead them to the truth. So yep, it's not also true. genuine reason. Depends how you define it. Yes, that's the answer I was looking for. Reason, it, this goes back to and one of our first lessons in apologetics. you got to define your terms. Whether it's evangelism or apologetics, somebody that you're speaking to can talk about reason and mean something completely different than what you mean. Because we believe that our faith is reasonable. We do not believe that Christianity is a blind faith. If, if you've ever said that, confess it, repent of it. All right? Christianity is not a blind faith. It is a reasoned faith. But it's, and it's only reasoned if it's based upon the presuppositions of Scripture. Then it becomes perfectly reasonable. I'll give you an example, and I don't have this in notes here. Is it reasonable to presume that 
dead men can, be, can live again. If you read your science book, it says no. If you read the scriptures, it's perfectly reasonable. So you have to define your terms and be careful. Don't just accept somebody's terms uh, at, at face value. Question them. What do you mean? When you say reasonable, what do you mean by reason? All right. And notice what he's saying here. Reason that displaced Christ as the ultimate authority. And isn't that just what the non-believer does? I'm going to reason what is reasonable to who? To me. That sounds reasonable. I'm not going to use what the Bible says. To me, that's not reasonable. Okay? Uh, they also fall short, fall, I'm sorry, they also fall into very sloppy and confused thinking due to misunderstanding over the word reason. That's just what we've been talking about. I like his phraseology here, very sloppy and confused thinking. Christians are often befuddled about reason, not knowing whether it is something to embrace or to eschew. All right? This is usually because they do not pinpoint the precise way in which the word is being used. That's just what we've been talking about. Okay? It may very well be the most ambiguous and obscure word in the field of philosophy. And I think that we really, I should have highlighted that phrase. Because when you go out onto the streets, evangelism, apologetics, you need to understand that. He, here, here's Bonson, one of the most brilliant apologists and philosophers of the, the 20th century. And he's saying that the word reason is probably one of the most ambiguous and obscure words in the whole field of philosophy. That's because it's redefined so, so many times. On the one hand, reason can be thought of as a tool, man's intellectual and me or mental capacity. All right? Taken in that sense, reason is, is a gift of God to man. So yes, are Christians meant to be reasonable? Of course we are. Reason is a gift from God. If you're taking it in the right way, that reason is a tool, not to your authority. See, and this is exactly what the non-believer does consistently, taking something that is meant to be a tool and making it an authority, They're misusing the word. When God bids, oh, wait a minute, hold on, uh, indeed part of the divine image, the fact that we can reason, that we can think, is because we are made in the image of God. If, if we were not made in the image of God, we would not be reasoning, reasonable people. When, God's bid his, when God bids his people, come let us reason together, we see that, like God, are capable of rational thought and communication. This is why we say we can only, the reason that we can even engage in evangelism and apologetics with the non-believer is they're borrowing from our worldview. And here he says it that much. I mean, very distinctly. We can see that, like God, we are capable of rational thought and communication. And that's always one of the ways you want to go. If somebody starts talking about logic and reason, 
What's your basis for your logic? How do you know? Do you, is, and Well, there's a whole, a whole host of things you can do from that. God has given us our mental abilities to serve and glorify him. It is part of the <clears throat> greatest commandment of the law that we should love the Lord thy God with all thy mind. Reason not ultimate. <clears throat> On the other hand, <clears throat> reason can be thought, thought of as an ultimate and independent authority or standard by which man judges all claims to truth, even God's. This is what you're going to run into most, most often. So you can see that reason, look at the two, the, how disparate, the, the, the disparity between them. One is a tool, gift from God. The other, it becomes an independent authority against the word of God. One is with it, one is against. Okay? In this sense, reason is a law unto itself as though man's mind were self-sufficient, not in need of divine revelation. This, so you can see why it's so important to define your terms. This attitude commonly leads people to think that they are in a position to think independently, to govern their own lives, to judge the credibility of God's word based upon their own insight and authority. And we see, where does that lead us? To the 21st century. Just look around us. I could go off and preach right there, but I won't. Reason as God's gift. Here's the other side of the coin. Should Christians endorse the use of reason? Two equal but opposite mistakes are made, are possible in answering that question. Obviously, by now you, you realize that reason is something that we should be using, but Bonson is playing devil's advocate here. You have two equal and opposite mistakes. One, believers can recognize the appropriateness of using reason taken as their intellectual faculty. Now, this would be somebody who recognizes the role of reason as a, as a tool, all right? But then slide into endorsing reason as intellectual autonomy. These are apologists who do not hold to our presuppositional methodology. And what do they do? They say, well, yes, I know the Bible is our ultimate authority, but when we're reasoning with people on the outside, we can't use it because they don't accept it. And that's what he calls a slide into endorsing reason as intellectual autonomy. Or two, believers can recognize the inappropriateness of reason as intellectual autonomy, which is the position we take, but then mistakenly uh, think this entails rejecting reason as an intellectual faculty. There are some brands of evangelical Christianity where they will not engage in apologetics. There are those who reject any type of of reason. I, I went to church with a fellow who would not read a book other than the Bible. He says, all I need is the Bible. He's rejected any type of intellectualism and reasoning and even the teaching of past saints. And, and obviously you can see how far that goes. All right. But, and that's what it's talking, rejecting reason. 
as an intellectual faculty. What they're doing is they're actually rejecting the way God has made us. He has made us intelligent, reasoning beings. And, and all through the scripture, we are told to use those faculties. In fact, to not use them is to delve into sin. Okay. The first group honors God's gift to man of reasoning ability, but dishonors God through its rationalism. The second group honors God's ultimate authority and the need for obedience in all aspects of man's life, but dishonors God through anti-intellectual pietism. Neither is good. So Paul counterbalances both of those areas in Colossians 2. And the first one, he, he writes down, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ. That's verse 3 of Colossians 2. You see that? All the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ. That's where, we have to, that's where we have to stay and understand that. And accordingly, we must beware lest anyone rob you through philosophy, even vain deceit, which is after the tradition of men, after the elementary principles of the world, and not after Christ. Now, again, we've covered that extensively in prior lessons, so I'm not going to comment on those. On the other hand... It is equally plain from Colossians 2 that Paul does not endorse reasoning and philosophy which refuse to honor the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that wisdom and knowledge are found. Any alleged wisdom which follows the traditions of men and elementary principles of the world rather than Christ is to be rejected as dangerous and deceitful. Sharpening the tool. This is his last section. Reason properly understood, that's reasoning, is to be endorsed by believers in Christ. In particular, it is to be employed in defending the, the Christian faith. Probably more than any other use of reason right, is for, for the believer is in defending the faith. Because that's the most crucial use of it. This is one of the things which Peter communicates to us when he wrote that we should always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope within you. A word of explanation and defense is to be offered to those who challenge the truth of our Christian faith. We are not to obscure the glory and veracity of God by answering unbelievers with appeals to blind faith or thoughtless commitment. And it is an absolute shame if you've ever heard somebody who, who doesn't study with the purpose of being able to defend the faith and being caught in a position at, at a workplace. I can remember uh, a police officer that I worked with, and he was a Christian. And I walked in on a conversation that he was having with one of the, our coworkers, And this guy, all he kept saying was, no, you just got to accept it by faith. And he said, well, why should I? He said, well, because you just have to accept it by faith. Said, you know, well, how do you know it's true? Because I feel it right here. You know, that is not defending the gospel. It's not being ready to give an answer. 
And that's what, what Bonson calls it, blind faith or thoughtless commitment. Where do you ever hear that other, I can feel it right here? That's exactly what the cults do, the Mormons in particular. We are not to, to give answers in that way. We are to cast down reasonings and every high thing exalted against the knowledge of God, realizing all along that we cannot do so unless we ourselves bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, it, it keeps swinging back again. Sometimes this, he sounds very redundant, and he is a little bit, but when he is, there's usually a reason for it. And this year, like we've, we've covered this in past lessons, but it's so crucial that we understand that and not abandon it because it's so easy to do so when you're under fire, when you're in the trenches. You know, you get a little bit, you know, overloaded, so to speak, to just abandon your precepts. And you can't do that. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter uses the expression, always ready. This is significant for those who wish to honor the biblical necessity of engaging in apologetics. What the Lord asks of us is that we be prepared to offer an answer in defense of our faith. Whenever anybody asks us for a reason, we ought to be ready to do this indeed Always ready. Think he said always ready enough? <coughs> and that means that it's imperative that we reflect on the questions that unbelievers are likely to ask and challenges, whoops, I'm sorry, and challenges which are commonly laid down to Christianity. We should study and be prepared to give reasons for our faith when the faithless ask. And then he closes with this paragraph here. Christians need to sharpen the tool of their reasoning, of their reasoning ability, so as to glorify God and vindicate the claims of the gospel. We should all give our best efforts in the service of our Savior, who termed himself the truth. Every believer wants to see the truth of Christ believed and honored by others, and that is why we need to be ready to reason with unbelievers. This study and those which follow are intended to help us become better prepared for that necessary task. Questions? When I put these on, you guys are just like a blurry mass. Not much better. Any questions? <laughs> All right, here it comes. <laughs> I suppose I asked for it. Any thoughts, questions? Or for Jerry's sake, psychosomatic disturbances? Okay, let's pray. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, 
where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda! Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.